So this passage starts, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. I want to start by saying, how does Paul view himself? As he introduces himself in this letter, how does he see himself? Well, first, he um, introduces himself with two roles and two purposes. Uh, He calls himself, first of two roles, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. First, a servant of God, or as some translations put it maybe even more bluntly, a slave of God. A servant or slave does not call the shots. He does not, by and large, determine his own course of action, his own life, what he does, let alone tell others what to do. The job of a servant is simply to obey what the master says. A servant makes his purpose the purpose of the master, and his aim is to please the person he serves. You see, we often, and, I, and rightly so, revere Paul as this fearless leader of the early church, a champion of evangelism and missions, the man most responsible for the spread of early Christianity. He courageously stood before Roman authorities, sternly rebuked false teachers, and ultimately was killed for refusing to renounce his faith. But as inspiring as a, of a leader as Paul is, he even in the introduction of this letter reminds Titus that he is ultimately a slave. He's ultimately a servant of God. And we see this throughout. I mean, in, in most of Paul's letters, if you um, turn to the beginning of the introduction, he often uses the term a, a servant, a slave of God of Jesus Christ. Um, and so he always makes sure to emphasize that. And so sometimes we can look at these leaders in the early church or these characters in the Bible and, and be tempted to make it about them. And even, even today as I'm talking, I'm going to say like Paul says or Paul writes, but ultimately when I say these things, we have to remember that it is the Lord speaking through Paul. And Paul himself sees himself as simply a servant or a slave of God. He is saying things, but he wants the focus to be on his God who has sent him. Which leads us to the second title. Paul says he is a servant of God and also an apostle of Jesus Christ. We're probably most accustomed to the title of apostle as, or or the word apostle as a title, right? Something that interests the apostle Paul, the apostle John, the apostle Peter. But behind any title is a meaning, right? Even the title of doctor, right? It's not just just a word, but it means something. It ultimately means someone who is an, an expert, who has learned in that field, The term apostle means messenger, or someone who is sent. Sending is the emphasis of the word. My brother actually has a tattoo that is, um, it's in Greek. And it says, it's on his leg, and it says, return to sender. It's it's a bit comical, but it's also deeply significant in in his belief in the resurrection, in his belief that he has been sent by God and will, will one day return to the Lord. And like I said, it's, it's actually written in Greek, return to sender. And the Greek word for sender that is tattooed on his leg is apostoleia. Sender, apostoleia. Does that sound familiar? You can see the word apostle in there, the Greek word. You see, to us, the title of apostle has an inherently religious tone about it. Like, you don't, we don't hear the word apostle pretty much except in the Bible or in a sermon on Sunday, Sunday morning. But... To the Greek readers, that was just a word. It would have been like reading the messenger Paul or the sent one John. 
Um, and so that's something that we can miss in the English because we kind of use the Greek word. Um, but this would have been often and would have been associated with, with certain people. Paul, the one who sent the, John, the, the messenger from God. So it gives it more meaning to us. And so we can, again, brush over these introductions as like, oh yeah, Paul the apostle. But he's actually saying something deeply significant about himself and how he views himself and his role in writing this letter to Titus. Again, he's saying, I have been sent by Jesus Christ. I am a messenger for Christ. This is not me and my agenda and what I want to happen. This is what God has called me to do and to say. And I have been sent for that purpose. In both roles, right, when we have the role of messenger and the role of servant, both of those, it's important to understand, okay, well, who's, whose servant are you and who has sent you? Right, and I've already said that, that it's, it's God, but those, both of those roles are not clear and defined in and of themselves. To just say, I am a servant, tells you something, but to know that I am, what I am a servant of or who I'm a servant to tells you more about my aim and my goals and what I'm all about. Likewise, to say, I'm a messenger, that doesn't tell me a whole lot <laughs> about you. If someone just comes up, I'm a messenger, well, of who? Whose message? Who are you delivering the message to? And here, he, he clarifies that he is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's unashamed about that. So Paul has these two roles, and he recognizes that God has called him to serve and to be sent for two purposes. <clears throat> the first one, he says, for the faith of God's elect. Before I get into the for the faith and what that means, I just want to stop and acknowledge the, the honorable term used for Christians here of God's elect. Elect means to be chosen, God's chosen people. I'm not going to wade into the waters of the doctrines of election and, and often debates and different views of what all that entails, but I want to simply acknowledge the wonderful value that God ascribes to us by calling us, by calling you elect. In calling his people elect, God is saying, I chose you. And he says this full well knowing our darkest moments, our most pathetic failures, our most repulsive sins, our most hideous betrayals of any goodness whatsoever, he says, yes, I know, I've seen it all. And he still says, I have chosen you. You are my people. It's like the kid in, in the schoolyard at recess who, you, you see him play and you can't tell if he's left-handed or right-handed because no matter which arm he uses to throw the ball, it, it looks equally as embarrassing. And he lines up for the pickup game and perhaps he's not even paying attention because he knows, I'm going to be last, I'll... It's going to be 10 minutes till I'm picked anyways. I'll just look up at the sky or, or, you know, doze off in the background. And then with the first pick in the game, the all-star athlete turns to him and says, I want you on my team. You see, like the kid who's no good at any sport whatsoever, we have nothing to offer God by being his people. In fact, we might often rightly feel more like a liability than an asset to the kingdom of God. We have nothing in ourselves to offer him. It would actually be a lot easier for him to just pass us by. It would have been a lot easier for him to not go to the cross, to not elect us as his people. Because picking us for his team costs a lot more than the athlete on the, in, at recess. It cost him the death of his son. 
It was far more costly than the illustration of the recess pickup game. But it's also far more dignifying for us. Because we're not elected just by some kid who's good at basketball or whatever on the playground, but we're elected by the God and creator of the universe. He says to you, I want you on my team. We receive this title of God's elect by faith. And Paul says that one of his duties is for that faith. Um, Or as the updated uh, translation of the NIV says, to further the faith of God's elect. So either way, whether it's simply for the faith or to further his purposes to further the faith of God's elect, we get the idea that faith is in need of being strengthened, of being grown. There's this purpose you've been sent. It's for the faith of God's elect. Right? God's elect. So those who already have faith, but there's a need for him to be sent, for him to serve for the sake of that faith. So we get the idea that this faith needs to be nurtured, strengthened, and grown. Sometimes we think we can think of faith as, as something you either have or you don't have. It's a binary measure. It's on or off. It's yes or no. It's up or down, black or white. Now, it's true that someone can either have faith or not have faith, right? There are two categories of people. There are those who are in Christ, who believe, and those who are outside of Christ and do not believe. But someone can also have a lot of faith or a little faith. And maybe more perplexing, someone can actually have faith but be lacking faith as well. How else do we make sense of passages like the the father in the Gospels whose, whose son was possessed by demons and he cries out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. There's faith there, but he also acknowledges a lack of faith, a need for that faith to be grown, a need for something more, and he calls on Jesus to do that. You know, even with that faith that was accompanied by some unbelief, Jesus did heal his son. Or Jesus on multiple occasions calling his own disciples, you of little faith. There's faith, but there's something more he's calling them to. There's a greater faith that he wants for them. Or on another occasion, Jesus says of a Roman centurion, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Those who are God's elect have faith. And often at first when someone follows Christ, it's faith the size of a mustard seed, which Jesus says is still something that is miraculously powerful. But God also seeks to nurture and grow that seed-like faith into mature fruit-bearing trees. And a primary instrument he uses for this task is his servants, is his apostles like Paul. And Paul recognized his task in doing that. The second responsibility, the purpose that Paul recognizes as he bears, as, as that he bears as a servant messenger of Christ, is not just for the faith of God's elect, but also for their knowledge of the truth. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth. You see, faith has an object. Faith is not just a thing in and of itself, but it has to be faith in something, or in our case, faith in someone. And to have faith in that thing, or especially to have faith in a person, you have to have a knowledge of that person. Some of you may, some of you may, some of you may not, have, have faith in a coworker of yours, someone you work with, or maybe a family member. I'm going to use the example of a coworker. You trust them. You can depend on them. You know you like working with them. You know you can count on them to do their job. 
if you're ever on a project or, or working with them, um, you know it's going to get done and things are going to go smoothly because you have faith in them. You know something, you don't need to check out in on what they're doing because you have faith that they're going to take care of their responsibilities. They are someone that you look forward to working with because you know them. You have faith in them because of your knowledge of them as an honest person, a hard worker, someone with integrity. Do you have that kind of faith in someone who you've never worked with before? Or someone whose name you don't even know? When a new person shows up on the job, do you assume that they are likewise someone you can fully depend on? Or you may be a little more likely to, to check in, check up to make sure things are, are going well. No, your faith proceeds from a knowledge of that person. You know them to be trustworthy. But faith, we said, is not something that's just an on-off switch. It's not just yes or no, but there's, there's a, a gradation, there's a, a spectrum of growth of it. Your faith in that coworker likely grew over time. Now, there might have been moments where they did something or that you saw their integrity, where your faith in them grew in leaps and bounds, but likely over time, as you got to know them, you trusted them more and more. It grew over time, you saw their work ethic. You experienced what it's like to work alongside them. You may have even developed a friendship with them. In other words, what grew your faith in that person was a growing knowledge about that person. And so it is with God. Knowing Christ is necessary to having faith in Christ. And if we want to know how is it that we grow in faith, how is it that our faith is furthered, it is by a furthering and deeper knowledge of who Christ is. The more we see the glory of who he is, the more we have faith that we can trust him for what he promises. It's not like you were saved, uh, it's not like you weren't saved, you weren't living for Christ at all, um, in devotion to Christ, and then one day you heard the, uh, uh, sorry, it's, yeah, it's not as if you were saved in living a life fully devoted to Christ, but had no knowledge of him, and then one day you heard the gospel, and you thought, oh, that's exactly what I've been doing, that's exactly who I've had faith in, who know, who knew, right, but you had to actually know Christ first, and then that faith grew, and you started living for him. God revealed himself to you. You learned who Christ is and what he did for you, and you, based on that knowledge and that revelation, responded in faith. That's why Paul writes in Romans 10, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So Paul's two charges as a servant and an apostle go hand in hand. He was used by God to further the faith of God's elect and to further their faith by furthering their knowledge of the truth. Now we must ask, what is this truth which God intends for his people to have a growing knowledge of? Well, if the growing faith is faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if the growing knowledge goes hand in hand with that faith, then we must arrive at the conclusion that the truth here, that they must have a growing knowledge of, is the truth of the gospel. The true revelation of God in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. This is important for, for this letter, because like in 1 John, this letter addresses similar issues of false teachers and false gospels that were around in the early church in Crete specifically. See, in this early church plant in Crete, you have many new believers, infants in the faith, with little sprouting seed-like faith. 
And among these vulnerable Christians arises warped false teachings about who Christ is and what he did. So to combat this growing knowledge of false gospels, Paul understands that for these young Christians to grow in faith, they must grow in the knowledge of the true gospel. And an increased knowledge in the true gospel produces something really special. It says, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. This is going to be a recurring theme throughout the book of Titus. The reality that right belief produces right living. It's not the other way around, but it's right belief produces right living. Sound doctrine produces good works. If you want to grow in godliness, grow in your knowledge and faith in the gospel. And conversely, wrong belief produces wrong living. False doctrine produces disobedient, worthless works. That's the reason I've chosen uh, the title for the series from this verse, because this is a theme, the, the title being the truth that leads to godliness. That's what this book is about. It is Paul writing to Titus, who we're going to be hear more about in just a minute. In the church in Crete, um, and he's urging him to establish and teach sound doctrine, the truth, so that this sound doctrine can produce godliness rather than godlessness that the false teachers are producing. The phrase good works shows up over and over and over again in Titus. I'm just going to read um, a few of them. This is from the English Standard Version. Uh, chapter 1, verse 16. They, meaning those who believe and teach the false gospel, are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Chapter 2, verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Chapter 2, verse 14. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be ready for every good work. Chapter 3, verse 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 8, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Chapter 3, verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Over and over again, we see the importance of right living, but that right living comes out of this knowledge of the truth, which we'll see as we get to each of those throughout the book, we'll see how Paul's always tying those back to the gospel, to the person of Christ. <clears throat> the knowledge of the true gospel produces faith and godliness. And these three things, the faith, the knowledge, and the godliness, are inseparably woven together. Faith requires the knowledge of what you have faith in, and then the knowledge and faith produces godliness. And Paul actually adds a fourth strand to this cord of rope. In verse 2 he says, A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. A hope in and a desire in the king, eternal kingdom of God. That hope of eternal life is wrapped up in all of this. It's faith, it's knowledge, it's godliness and its hope. As we study this book over the next few weeks, I hope we'll see how the knowledge and how, how knowledge and faith in the truth of Jesus Christ produces godliness in the lives of God's elect. 
And my prayer is that we would likewise be edified by the sound doctrine, right? What we're reading is a letter about sound doctrine, but it also is itself sound doctrine in the teaching of God. Um, and so I hope as we read it and study it, we are reminded of the truth ourselves, and it produces and leads to this godliness um, that, that Paul is writing about here. So that's how Paul sees himself, and that's actually a bulk, a bulk of it. He spends a lot of time talking about and introducing himself, but even in introducing himself, he talks about how we see how he sees God. In verse 2, he says, A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised beforehand, or is promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. This hope of eternal life that he talks about is promised by God. And here Paul, still introducing himself, you'll notice it's not until verse 4 that he wraps up talking about introducing himself in the letter. So he's still introducing, he's still characterizing Paul, who this letter is from, and yet he spills over and talking about himself as a servant of God, he can't help but start praising and worshiping God in his introduction. He can't help but glorify his master, his sender. The first thing he pra- praises about our God is that his promises are certain. It says, God who does not lie. Now that's an important qualifier when he's talking about um, this hope of eternal life that God promised. He says, and God does not lie. All of us, I'm sure, have experienced at some point in our lives broken promises. Could be a friend in school making a promise with their fingers crossed. It could be an offer to pay you back, but that payment never came through. Or perhaps most painfully for some, a broken wedding vow is a broken promise. See, promises are actually an incredible social reality. In a perfect world where promises aren't broken, they provide the security that's necessary to fully enjoy relationships and intimacy with others. You know you can trust someone. You know that you're safe. You know something's being taken care of because promises hold value. But like all other good things, Satan has corrupted promises. It's interesting. In fact, in his very temptation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he used a false promise. He lied. He said, you will not surely die. He took actually a a promise of God and said, no, it's not true. Listen to my promise. That's not going to happen. Eat the fruit. Jesus called called him the father of lies. He says in um, the book of John, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, speaking of Satan, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then Jesus said in the same passage to the Jews, you are of your father, the devil. And as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Satan is the father of lies, and mankind captive to Satan and following him in our sin, we lie. We break promises. Because we are in captivity to the father of lies. And so sometimes, especially those of us who have been burned by broken promises in the past, we can be hesitant to believe the promises of God. 
Because our hearts have been hardened to just not believe when someone says, I promise I'll do this. Or I promise you. But Numbers 23.19 said, God is not a man that he should lie. And here Paul reminds us again, God does not lie. Paul sees God as entirely trustworthy in what he promises. If God says it, you can take it to the bank. And he promises that in his son, Jesus Christ, there is eternal life, right? Last, you guys covered that, um, Joel covered that in the last uh, sermon on 1 John, right? 1 John 5, and this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. God said that. He promised that. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot believe in Christ and then get to the end of your life and be like, sorry, you didn't make it. It's not a broken promise. It's a true promise. That is no lie. That's no false gospel. It's not fake news. It's impossible for it to be a lie because it's impossible for God to lie. Did you hear that? If you place your faith in Christ, it is impossible for it to not be worth it. Because he has said, it will be worth it. You cannot place your faith in Christ and miss out on the promise of eternal life. Paul also says that God has promised the hope of eternal life from the beginning of time. What does that mean? It means that there's another reason that we can have confidence in the promise of God. As if the impossibility of him lying wasn't enough. You see, a promise can be broken in one of two ways. First of all, and perhaps most commonly, a promise can be broken because when the person made that promise, they never had any intention of fulfilling it. It was a lie from the, get, from the get-go. The moment they said, yeah, yeah, I'll pay you back for that, they actually never intended to follow through. It was a lie, like the lie, like the false promise of Satan in the Garden of Eden. You will not surely die. He knew from the very beginning that that was not true. But as we just noted, God does not lie. And so he cannot have a false promise in that sense. But someone could also break a promise, not because of deceit, but because of inability. When the friend said, I'll pay you back for that, they may have truly meant it and truly intended to pay you back. But then they fell upon even harder times, and they couldn't come up with the money, no matter how hard they tried. You don't get your money back. Now, this type of broken promise may be a little less hurtful, because you know their intentions were good, but the fact of the matter is the promise was still broken. It didn't happen. It didn't come true. You're still out your money. So perhaps you don't doubt God's promises because you think he would lie to you. You know his intentions are good but maybe you doubt that he's able to fulfill his promises. Maybe you doubt his power. Not that he wants to, but that he can. So what does this have to do with God promising eternal life before the beginning of time? It means that even before the father of lies presented the false promise to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God had intended redemption. From before the beginning of time, God intended for this promise of eternal life to be for his people. Even before we needed rescue in the first place, he intended to rescue us. And guess what? He intended that, and then we sinned. He wanted eternal life for us, we sinned. We earned death. We made a mess of the world. 
The patriarchs failed, Israel failed, the kings failed, failure after failure after failure throughout the Old Testament. And you might read through your Old Testament and get to the end and think, how on earth is this leading to redemption? Where is eternal life in this? The best that happened is that they came back from exile and rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple, but even the old men are crying because they're like, this isn't it. This isn't the fulfillment of the promises of God. And yet through it all, and I don't mean through it all like instead of it all, but actually using those very failures, God brought about his son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The fact is that before the beginning of time, God promised eternal life. And then after mankind's failure after failure and mess after mess and sin after sin, God sends his son into the world, who is then killed by mankind. So even at that point, you might think, all right, it's over. He tried to save them. He tried to send the Messiah. He tried to redeem them, and they killed him. Now what? And yet, through that very evil act of the crucifixion of the Son of God, God says, see, just like I planned it. Come, I offer eternal life. It's actually through that that he fulfills his promises. He's, it's put the, the early church recognized this. They put um, in Acts 4, they acknowledged, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Which led to the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Through it all, God stands triumphant because he is in control the whole time. Through all the failures, he is bringing about the promise of eternal life. God has always intended to rescue his people from sin and promise them eternal life. And now, just as he planned it, just as he intended, at his appointed season, as Paul writes here, he has brought this promise to light through the proclamation of the gospel, which he does through Paul and the other apostles, and even us today who proclaim to a dying world God promises eternal life in his son, Jesus Christ. The point here is that God is sovereign. He's in complete control, and he cannot lie. And so, you see, promises, so promises are, I said, promises are broken in one of two ways. It's either a lie from the beginning, the promise maker never keeps, intends to keep their word, which, you see, God cannot lie, so that can't be it can't use that excuse to not believe the promises of God. Secondly, promises are broken because the promise is unable to be kept. can't use that excuse either because God has shown that he can do all things and he does exactly what he intends to do. So he will not be unable to fulfill his promise of eternal life to you. Here Paul does away with both excuses to not trust in the promises of God. God does not lie, so you can't disregard on those grounds. And he is in complete control, so you can't disregard it on the grounds that maybe he wants to, but he can't do it. Paul sees himself as a servant and a sent messenger of God for the sake of God's people. And he sees God, the one he serves, as one who keeps his promises. God intend, what God intends to do, namely to redeem his people, he will do. And so Paul is confident that he will work through him to build up and save his people, even in the face of false teachers and unsound doctrine. He is confident that the sound doctrine of God and godliness will prevail. 
So we saw how Paul sees himself as a messenger, as a servant of God, and how he sees God as one who is faithful to keep his promise and will bring his plan to completion. Now, how does he see Titus, who he's writing to? Verse 4, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Finally, we arrive at the namesake of the book, Titus. Um, And here, I'll be briefer, as Paul is. After a lengthy and deeply theological introduction of himself, Paul writes a far briefer, yet still deeply heartfelt address to the recipient of the letter. He simply says, "To, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So what do we know about this Titus? What do we know about the person who is receiving this letter? He's actually mentioned several times in the New Testament. Um, in Galatians, several times in 2 Corinthians, which I'll get to why that is in a minute, um, and 2 Timothy, in addition to the book we're reading now, which is addressed to him. Just to, I don't have time to get into all of it, but just to summarize what we learn about Titus from these different passages is first, he was a Greek convert to Christianity, and so he was, did not, um, he was not Hebrew, he was not uh, Jewish, but he was actually a Gentile, a Greek um, convert to Christianity. Secondly, he was a companion of Paul and often accompanied him on his missionary journeys, um, often alongside others such as people you might know as like Timothy and Luke, who were companions and traveled and, and kind of assistants to Paul as an apostle. Um, and for this reason, actually, First Timothy and Titus look very similar because they're likewise letters from Paul to kind of his disciples, the people he traveled with, kind of giving them instruction and encouragement in their own ministries. Um, third is he was beloved and trusted by Paul. And then fourthly, uh, he, interestingly, he delivered the letter of 2 Corinthians to the church in Corinth, which is why he comes up several times in that book Paul writes about him, because he was the one who was hand-delivering the letter from Paul, and so Paul tells him how to treat him, what he thinks of Titus, he just mentions Titus in his travels, and things like that. Um, Titus here is called a true son. This shows Paul's affection and care for him. He likens him to his own child, a spiritual son, if you will. Going back to um, what Joel said in one of his sermons on First John, I think it was the, the children of God message, um, he talked about the church being a family. We see that coming out again in this address. He calls Timothy, or sorry, Titus, um, his son, his true son the relationship of a father to a child within the body of Christ, and that this relationship is born out of our common faith, he says. In Christ, we are made to be family. And Paul sees Titus as a dearly loved son of his. But this is actually just one facet of Paul's intimate relationship with Titus. In 2 Corinthians, he calls him a brother. So he's a son, yet also a brother. Which shows that even within the body of Christ, we can have brothers and sisters, and yet people in our church family can be like fathers, like mothers, like sons, like daughters to us. Um, he also calls him his partner and fellow worker for your benefit. So in calling him his, his son, there's not so much this like hierarchy authority structure, though that is present somewhat. He is discipling Titus. But he also acknowledges him in ways of brother, of partner, of fellow worker. And that last phrase that he calls him in 2 Corinthians, he calls Titus his partner and fellow worker for your benefit, sounds very familiar to Paul 
a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Fellow worker, for your benefit, talking to the church. Again, the ministers are for the sake of God's people, not for themselves. And Paul also calls him his true son. Titus is a, a younger man, a disciple of Paul's, who has proved to be faithful and true to the gospel. Sadly, even Paul himself was familiar with pouring into these spiritual sons who proved to be false. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon, for Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What's important to note here for the rest of our study in this book is two things about how Paul sees Titus. First, he loves him. Affection and desire for him to succeed in his own ministry to the Lord is deep within the heart of Paul. Titus is not just a subordinate to give marching orders to in Paul's eyes. He is a son who he wants to encourage to live out his own calling from God. That's going to be important for us to recognize as we read these words throughout the book of Paul to Titus. And secondly, Paul sees Titus as trustworthy. He calls him a true son. As I mentioned a minute ago, um, this indicates that Paul sees his faithfulness to the Lord and the sound doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Titus. Titus is not one of the false teachers. He is not one who fell away from the faith chasing after worldly passions. Paul trusts him because he is rooted in the truth that leads to godliness. Lastly, what, why, why is Paul writing this letter to Titus? Verse 5 says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. What's the occasion? What does Paul want from Titus? That's what we're going to ask here. And then after answering that question, I hope to tie it all together, all that we've seen in these first five verses to show how Paul's introduction to the letter is fitting to the purpose of the letter. So first, why did Paul write this letter to Titus? We learn at the beginning of verse 5 that Paul previously was actually with Titus in Crete, Um, but then he left him there. He says, the reason I left you in Crete. And so we can imply that they were there together. And then Paul left, but he said to Titus, stay here. So he's in Crete. Crete is an island in southern Greece, and today it's the most populous island in in the modern-day nation of Greece. Um, And in Crete, at this time, in, in the you know, 2,000 years ago, people from Crete were apparently infamous for their lack of moral character. And later in chapter 1, Paul quotes a native Cretan um, who said, of his own people, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He's not pulling any punches. And that was someone, like, saying it of his own people, right? This wasn't even someone who, like, had something against people from Crete. This was a person from Crete saying this of his own people. They had a reputation. Paul, you see, had apparently established the church in Crete, gone and preached the gospel there with Titus with him, but then left Titus there um, to continue the work of straightening out what was left unfinished and appointing elders in every town. We also learn later in chapter one that this is a tall order and a critical task. Since among the Christians in Crete, it says, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. And these people are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. 
You see, the young budding Cretan church is beset by leaders and teachers who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So this is the context and the purpose of this book of the Bible. The foundation has been laid, but it needs to be built upon. The church has been started, but the enemy is already trying to tear it down. And Paul has been called on to something else, to another mission field, and he's left Titus there to keep working at it, to keep laying the bricks, to keep building on the foundation of this church, despite the fact that the enemy is nearby, that false teachers are in the church trying to tear that work apart. It reminds me of the exiles who returned from Jerusalem and were rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah, it talks about how they were laboring with one hand and had a sword in the other. I get that same picture of rebuilding this wall and yet the enemy being all around just trying to attack and tear it down before it even gets started. Titus' task is critical and the situation is dangerous. And this is why Paul's introduction and his greeting are so significant. First, let's start with how Paul sees himself as a servant and apostle of the Lord. Though this church is young, and though the threats are real and strong, it is not Paul's church. Paul is not the master. Paul is not the sender. He is the servant and messenger for the sake of the church, the Cretan church included. For this reason, Paul could actually establish this church and then leave because it was ultimately under the direction of God. He does not see himself as, I am the builder of the church, or I am the one who is advancing Christianity in the world. God was doing that. He was just doing it through him. If I could briefly acknowledge some similarity to our own church right now. This is not Pastor Matt's church. And he will be the first to tell you that. I think he actually did clearly say that before he left. This is not his church. This is Jesus Christ's church. He has faithfully shepherded this community for a quarter of a century. But even so, this is not his church. And we are deeply thankful for the Lord sending that servant to us. We eagerly await when he will send him back. But it's God's. It's Christ's. Pastor Matt any of the elders, any of you are servants of God for the sake of each other. We heard this morning, we're halfway through the sabbatical, which in some ways is hard to believe. It feels like it's gone pretty quickly, for me at least. And look, this church is still pushing ahead. God's elect are still growing in their faith and in the knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness. This is Jesus' church. Like I said, we are eager for the Lord to send Matt back to us, but we also acknowledge that he serves God to our benefit. Secondly, God's promises are certain. How does how Paul sees God, how is that important for how we read Titus? Well, his promises are certain. God does not lie, and his purposes do come to pass. What bearing does this have on the circumstances in Crete? Well, it means that Paul can encourage Titus that despite opposition, he can take the sound doctrine of the true gospel to the bank. He can trust that this difficult task that he has set before him of building up the church and appointing godly elders to contend for the truth, that all that work is worth it. Titus will not fight and persevere. 
God's elect in Crete also will not fight and persevere, only to realize that in the end, it was all a sham. The truth contains the hope of eternal life, which God promised, and God does not break his promises, either by lying or an inability to make it happen. And so we too, do we trust fully in the promises of God? Do you believe that it's worth it? Or do you think maybe he's lying? Or, oh, I know God wouldn't lie, but I'm not sure he can make it happen. I'm not sure you can do that good work in me in this church. Thirdly, Paul sees Titus as a true son. That he views Titus as trustworthy and faithful is backed up by the, just the very fact that he's charging his disciple with this important work. But his love for him as a son is also backed up by his encouraging words. Paul has not left him out to dry. He hasn't said like, see you, Titus, this is a mess, I'm going to leave it on your hands. Um, he's not just thrown him to the lions. First of all, because he knows that it's God's church. And he trusts in the promises of God. So he knows he can lead this, this young leader, Titus, and God will work through him to do it. Because he's ultimately putting his faith in Christ. In Titus, who has faith in Christ. And Paul trusts him. And he loves him. He actually ends his letter by assuring him that help is on the way. And a reunion with him is, is hoped for. In chapter 3, he says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best, Titus, to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Hopefully, this morning has helped us as we begin the study of the book of Titus. The reality of false gospels and ungodly living threatening the church is not a problem that is unique to Crete. It was prevalent throughout the first century church, and it's still a threat today. There are false gospels all around us. False gospels of materialism, of idolizing political ideologies, of nationalism, of of sexual liberation, and the like. These all vie for our faith and trust. They say, look here, trust me, I hold the key to life, hope in me. But, dear brothers and sisters, only faith and knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. None of these other gospels produce godliness, and none hold the promise of eternal life. All these things have been trying to solve humanity's problems since the beginning of humanity, and we're no better off for it. The only thing that offers lasting hope and solutions for this broken world is the sound doctrine, the truth of the gospel the God who does not lie and is in control. He is the one who can fix it. And you can look at each of these false gospels or any others that you can think of, and you can observe their fruit. Materialism produces greed and discontentment. It's not godliness. Idolatry of political ideologies breeds division, not godliness. Nationalism likewise begets division and also pride, not godliness. Sexual liberation conceives sensuality and lust, not godliness. Over the course of this series, may we allow God's word to speak to us and point us to the one and only truth which produces godliness and the hope of eternal life, the sound doctrine of the life, death, resurrection, and imminent return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.